Farmerama, our third birthday edition, supported by Rebel Kitchen. This month we hear from the worm lady, Jackie Stroud. We get some tips on cow pats and profitability from a Missouri-based mob grazer. We hear some thoughts on regenerative agriculture from the owner of a biodynamic vineyard in California. And we have the latest update from Jubilee Farm in Northern Ireland. Can I just say first how great it is that we're all here together in the same room, along with Bessie the farm mama dog, <laughs> who doesn't make any noise, you won't, you won't know she's here. <laughs> yes, yeah, so good to be here, so good to see you both, and to record together. It's the first time it's ever happened, I think, so yeah, it's nice to be here and not on the other end of a laptop for once. So before we start, Abby, a couple of the interviews in this show come from the Groundswell conference that you were at quite recently. So maybe you want to just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I was at the Groundswell conference, which is the no-till conference, organised by the Cherry family in Hertfordshire. Um, it's quite unlike any other conference. They really know about their farming, obviously, as a farming family. And so they bring amazing speakers from all over the world to talk about soil health, um, and some of them are quite forward-thinking. Was it fun? It was really fun. It's a brilliant two days, and there's just like people from all types of agriculture there. Um, definitely a good mix of conventional and organic farmers, all really sharing their knowledge. Jackie Stroud is a soil scientist at Rothamsted Research and renowned in the UK farming community as the Worm Lady. She recently ran a citizen science project with farmers around the country. It was called Hashtag 60 Min Worms. And the goal was to encourage farmers to count the number of worms in their soil. Her particular focus is on recording the types of worms present and she's created a wonderfully simple quiz to help you learn how to identify them. It's all good fun, but ultimately it's about the very serious issue of monitoring and building soil health. You do a lot of soil sampling and, and digging holes, and I was finding some soils are absolutely, you know, colander-like. They're full of um, life and biodiversity, whereas other other soils I was digging were just like a solid block, and there's not really much life on there. And as a soil scientist, that's quite boring. But also, it really shows me there's something not quite right. And worms are such a great indicator of soils. I really hope to study them and also help other people look at their soils to understand them. A key thing with earthworm counts is just getting in there and looking at soils. And with my earthworm count, I suggest 10 pits across the field. So you get a really good average and you can see compaction issues, texture differences, which sometimes people haven't looked at before. Worm populations are very variable. So when you um, do a count, you need to do quite a lot of counting to get a really good representative answer. For example, you can find two worms in one pit and 20 worms in the next pit. And that can be quite hard to interpret, which is why digging a bit deeper and looking at the types of worms you have can tell you a little bit more about what's going on in your soils. 
there are three types of uh, worms. There's the type which is a litter feeding worm, so it needs litter on the soil surface. So if soil management practices include cultivation, so you're burying that litter layer, there's nothing for them to eat, so their populations can decline. And then you've got your topsoil worms. These are really important for nutrient mobilisation, and they're just you know working their way, churning up that topsoil layer. Um, and that's why you dig holes to find them, because that's where they live. And then you've got the deep burrowing worms, and they're also highly prized by farmers because they're known as the drainage worms. So they're the ones that help stop that standing water and help wick that water to the drains um, in, in the soils. And that group, particularly Lumbricus terrestris, the lobworm, that's really vulnerable to soil management practices because, again, it eats the litter, so burying that, but also it has a, quite a slow life cycle, which is why once its population starts to decline, you can sort of can see a continued decline and it slowly builds up over time. So by looking at the three different types of worms you have, I can tell you a little bit about if you've perhaps over-cultivated in the past and have impacted your worm community. Each one has a specific role. So, as I said, we've got the drainage worms, which make deep vertical burrows in the soil, and that's quite a unique property. The other types of worms don't do that. Those worms will dig up to sort of six foot in the soil, maybe two metres deep. They keep those channels permanent because they live in them their whole lives, maintaining that open burrow. So that's really quite a unique role, which is why having those in the system is important. Whereas perhaps the litter feeding worms, if you have surface litter, you'd like that to be broken down to help the crops emerge. So that's another key feature. And then mixing all that soil together you know, breaking down the nutrients, aggregating the soil. That's what the topsoil worms do. So by seeing all the different groups, each one has a unique function. So that's why it's quite a good idea to have all three. So the first step is you can only identify adult worms. So when you dig a pit, the average in this country is like 10 worms in a soil pit, which is a 20 centimetre by 20 centimetre uh, soil pit. And of those 10 worms, maybe only two or three are adults. And to tell an adult, what you're looking for is the saddle, which is sort of thickened reproductive ring on it. And if your worms have got a saddle, then you can take it to the next step and identify what type it is. Now, they're quite easy to distinguish. The litter type, they're usually red in colour. That's a good camouflage colour. Imagine they're, they're quite good bird food being on the surface. So they're red, a little bit of protection from the sun, like a sort of suntan. And they're quite fast moving. Again, they're easily predated, so they're fast moving and red. Then we've got the topsoil worms. Now they live in the soils, so they're often much more paler in colour or green colour. So they're pale or green and their size, they can range from sort of a matchstick size through to that of a, you know, a pen sort of size. They can grow quite large, but generally closer to the size of a matchstick. And then finally the deep burrowing worms. Again, they can have a dark head, they're, they're litter feeding, like that sort of sun, suntan type thing, so a black head or a red head. And they're large worms. They can be um, either long and thin or shorter and fatter, but again, at least the size of a pen would be the adult sized worm there. There's a new AHDB leaflet called How to Count Worms, which was based on our, our worm survey, bringing all that feedback from farmers. So it's got some really nice pictures there, so you can help get your eye in. And then um, just based on the feedback, I've made a fun interactive quiz, which is just 15 questions uh, from pictures I've taken in the lab and in the field of worms with the answers. So you can have a practice go before you go out to the field, and that will help speed things up when you're out there, because you've got your eye in, you know what you're looking for already. You can't monitor them all year round, that is a, a downside. For example, this time of year, it's, it's not an appropriate time of year to look for earthworms because most of them are hibernating, so that's when it doesn't really work. But in the UK, uh, earthworms are endemic across this country. I think we've got 28 different species in this country, so that's why they're quite a useful indicator, because uh, there's no reason why they could, shouldn't really be in your, in your soils. So really, it's just time of year um, uh, looking for them is, is the key.
I just strongly encourage people just to go out there and, and have a look at your soils. I recommend using a fork instead of a spade for when you look at your field because you chop less worms in half. And if you have any um, problems or questions, well, you know, please let me know um, because that's how we can sort of learn together is very much your observations and my interpretations just coming together. It's very powerful when we're using the same method, same time of year, because that's um, proper data that we can then share and, and lead to the advances that I think we're all looking for. If you want to find out more and hone your worm knowledge, you can check out the worm quiz at wormscience.org. Greg Judy is a mob grazer based in Missouri. He talks to us about getting out of the red, getting animals back on the land, and building biodiversity in grasslands, all with the goal of increasing the long-term viability of your farm, even with limited resources. When you start getting your animals tighter on a small area for a short period of time, let me stress that, short periods, and moving them, you're actually starting to change the biology of the soil and you'll start to see other grasses come up you'll start to see clovers come up they were in the seed bank the problem was they never got to express themselves let's just say you had 100 acres or hectares and you you give the whole farm to the, that group of cattle or sheep or whatever we're going to talk cattle it takes 27 years to cover your whole farm every square foot of it with a manure pile with what we call continuous grazing with mob grazing, where you're mobbing your animals up into a smaller area and you're moving them more frequently, it takes about one and a half years. You've covered every square foot of your farm with a manure pile. Now, what's so important about that? Well, I can tell you what. First of all, you're getting extremely good fertilizer utilization all over your farm. But better than that, if you take a soil penetrometer probe and stick it through a manure pile after it's been there for three weeks, and then stick it in the ground right next to the manure pile, you will bury that thing clear to the handle as long as you don't have rock under your soil but it just glides down through the soil why does it do that under a manure pile it's because you have all these worm holes the worms are aerating your soil where there is no manure it's going to be tougher to push that probe in so the quicker you can cover your farm with manure piles the quicker you can grow more grass which means you can buy more cattle that's what it's all about folks we have got to make a profit on the land Otherwise, everything we're talking about here, it's not sustainable. And while I mentioned that word sustainable, let me clarify something. We're hearing a lot about sustainable. Oh, we want to be sustainable. No, we don't. We want to be regenerative. If you inherited your mom and dad's farm and it's been degraded and you're going to sustain it, you're sustaining a degraded resource. We want to build soil and you can do that with animals so it's regenerative. We're making it better each year. The whole key of rotational grazing is when you start grazing around your farm and you're, you're keeping those animals on a smaller portion, you're moving them. So you're moving them every day. You're keeping them off of their manure and their urine. And the flies are all behind them. And so we don't worm. We don't use any pesticides, no fungicides, nothing. Because healthy animals stay healthy when you're always moving them on to clean ground. So the quickest way to jumpstart your farm profitability-wise, invest in water and fence. And then get some animals out there and just start grazing what's growing on your farm. Don't go spend thousands of dollars putting all this fancy grass seedings in. 
graze what's there. We you get winters, you get a lot of rain, we do too, but we don't put our animals up in a feedlot. We don't put them in a barn. We leave them out on the land. But we're moving them. Even in the wintertime, we're moving them around our farms. And so they're putting out the manure and the urine. We're not hauling all this straw and hay up into our barn and putting it in a feedlot. Now you got to haul that crap out in the spring. Let the animals do it for you. Now here's the key. You've got to get the right size animals. If your cows weigh 16 to 1,800 pounds and you're trying to graze in England when you've had 30 days of rain, that's not going to work. You've got to get your cows down in that 900 to maybe 1,100 pound range. They're smaller. Move them. Move them every day around that farm. They don't pug your farm up. Get your purchased hay or whatever you're going to feed them. If you're doing real good, you can grow stockpile, which is grass that is stockpiled in the fall, and you can meter that out all winter long to your animals. You don't have to feed them anything. So we're capturing all the pee. We're capturing all the poop out on the pasture, which will grow us more grass the next year. What a character. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. I absolutely love his manure pack chat. He had a very kind of analytical approach to the number of manure pads mm. on your land. And then also this idea of you put the soil probe in and it's just a completely different mm. world underneath a manure pad. I've always, you know, the soil scientists recommend that you don't uh, test in a manure pad mm-hmm. because it would be different. But I've never actually gone and done it. And now I really want to go and stick a soil probe <laughs> down a manure pad. What are your guys' thoughts on getting more animals on the land? I thought what he had to say was really, really compelling. And I mean, I speak as a layperson, as a non-farmer. And I think one of the things I found especially interesting and sort of challenging was the way he talks about livestock really being a re- renewable resource, you know, almost like a crop, which to me, makes absolute sense rationally. And I think it's actually really refreshing to hear someone talk about livestock in such kind of pragmatic terms. But there is also a certain part of me that finds it really jarring, you know, as as an ex-vegetarian. There's definitely still a part of me that really struggles with the emotional side of knowing that if I want meat to be part of my diet, it means killing intelligent animals. Um, And maybe that's just a contradiction that's always going to be there. But yeah, I thought it was really interesting to hear him talk about that aspect of it. Mm. Yeah, definitely something I think is sort of somewhere in the back of everyone's minds. One of the things to think about is like that more Eastern perspective on things that it is just both at once. Mm. And that we have to come to terms with that. Yep. Now, we're excited to announce our new supporters, Rebel Kitchen. Their mission is to redefine health through food, business and beyond. And they have a different kind of health message, one that doesn't separate the individual from the whole, and that's based on action instead of preaching, because it's all connected. As we have heard from many people, health starts on the farm. It's so important to have food companies actively supporting and engaging with the farming community connecting up the dots for the well-being of humans and the earth. We're happy to have Rebel Kitchen here on the Farmerama journey.
Paul Dolan runs the Dark Horse Vineyard and Farming Company, a biodynamic enterprise in Mendocino County, California. Alongside his grapes, he also farms olives, fruits, and sheep. He's committed to regenerative agriculture, using farming practices that contribute to the restoration of the land, with the majority of his vines being dry farmed, which is super important in California. Recently, I've become particularly interested in this conceptual framework of regenerative agriculture. And the way I describe regenerative agriculture is uh, any farming practice that uh, contributes to the restorative capacity of the farm. So it's not about short-term farming thinking, it's about long-term farming thinking. Um, And also regenerative farming builds up resilience of the plant itself. So what I've been exploring is, um, can I farm in such a way that I can use um, what nature provides? Um, So can I actually uh, capture carbon from the atmosphere through the plant uh, using the, the carbon cycle, if you will, down through the plant and in through the roots and ultimately um, supporting the, the microbial activity and the, generating the mycorrhizal fungi and then releasing carbon into the soil. Same thing with nitrogen. Can I farm in such a way that I can capture nitrogen from the air? And the third thing is um, using the microbial activity in the soil supporting the diversity of the microbes such that they are doing the work, um, extracting the carbon, building the humus, and which expands the water holding capacity. So therefore I don't have to irrigate. So the process that I'm using for that is uh, one is I build compost. And so we do an annual um, compost uh, structuring using pumice and um, cow manure and straw. And we build about three tons per acre that we spread in the fall right after harvest. We also graze the animals throughout the winter. Um, We we use sheep. We have a flock of about 50 sheep that we run through the vineyards. Additionally, we'll use biodynamic preps, which we think is a significant piece to the fertility. And um, now we're um, changing up our cultivation practices in order to reduce the amount of cultivation. So we've cut our cultivation in half. So every other row is what we call a permanent cover. And uh, we've this is our third year. My concern there was that, and what we've always said in, in grape farming is that if you don't cultivate, you're going to get wicking and you're going to lose moisture. And I thought it would impact my my um, vigor, but I'm actually finding that I'm it's not impacting the vigor at all. And I've got about the same amount of vigor that I've always had. Yeah, so the philosophy here is that we want the vine roots to penetrate as deep as they possibly can in order to extract as much flavor and minerality from this property. So in, in winemaking, we say we use the term terroir, and the terroir means the, the expression of place. And so my philosophy is that we don't want the roots to, to acclimate themselves just to the space under the drippers, because then it's only drawing the expression of the property from a very small percentage of the property. So we look at it from the standpoint that we're not managing the vines themselves, we're van- managing the space in which the plant grows. And so deep root penetration is a critical piece. So about year three, of the de, during the development of the vine, we'll go through with what we call a hoe plow or a French plow, it's also called, and we remove the roots um, in the vine row 
in order to get the plant to realize that they have to send roots down deeper. So we'll water um, significantly the first two or three, four years. And then year five, we start cutting the water back in half and then in half again the next year and next year by year 10, the plants are dry farmed on a hillside piece of property. I have this philosophy. I say farming grapes is kind of like raising a child. So each grapevine representing our, our children. So in, um, when we raise our kids, we, we, have, uh, we have some opportunities to impact them to some degree. We can feed them well. Um, we can nurture them when they're young. Um, we can uh, give them an opportunity to go to good schools or to have good friends, to be able to choose whether they want to do sports or music. But really, the contribution that we provide for our kids is contributing to the space in which they thrive and grow. And I say it's the same thing for a grapevine. We can contribute to the health and the viability of the soil and the, and the space of the roots, but also the space in which the, the plant itself grows. And our greatest hope for our kids, as is our vines, that they'll um, grow up and fully developed and be fully expressed. One thing I was going to ask about was when he talked about having permanent cover. I wasn't 100% sure what that meant in practice. So I guess maybe if you can talk a bit about that. Sure. Well, many vineyards, you'll go and you'll see the vines in rows and then all the ground below is completely dirt or just dirt. Um, And obviously that's not great for soil. So a lot of vineyards in California put cover crops in between. But... Still, because they're worried about water, their narrative is to then till in that cover crop. And so again, you get bare soil at certain times of the year when Mm -hmm. they want to reduce, or they think that it will allow more water to go to the vines. Mm -hmm. For him, it means that all year round, he's leaving that cover crop. In the ground. In the ground. Okay. So it's like green below the vines all year round. And it was so interesting to see that he had seen no difference in terms of water use. Yeah. Okay. And that's much more in line with all of the kind of science coming through from other parts of the farming world. Mm-hmm. Cool. Was there anything he said that you're curious to try out on your family's vineyard? Mm. Well, we actually, we leave permanent cover all the time. Mm. Um, so we definitely do that already. I really like, you haven't, it's so beautiful, his vineyard. When you're up on the top of the hillside, you can see out over the Mendocino Valley. And then he has these cypress trees and lavender all along the ridge. And it just, you feel like you're in another land. Mm -hmm. So that was what I was most inspired by, is adding some of this colorful beauty all within the vineyard. Finally, we pay our regular visit to Jubilee Farm in County Antrim, Northern Ireland. Last month, they hosted the very intriguing sounding BioBlitz Festival. Johnny tells us about the festival and also speaks to Grow Wild Manager, Stephanie Bain, about her Free Range Families program. The idea is to engage with communities to get people thinking about native species and working to protect them. There's a bit of wind noise in this recording, so apologies for that. We're back at Jubilee Farm this month where we've just finished a really successful 
BioBlitz Festival. And a BioBlitz is a citizen science survey of all the species within a given area over 24 hours. And as part of that, we recorded over 360 different species. The festival part then was uh, having a, a program over that same period of walks and talks and activities for all ages that really drew in the entire community around Jubilee Farm to engage with wild nature and with wildlife. And we had over 400 people attending that. And our BioBlitz Festival is part of a wider project of conservation engagement called Free Range Families, which is funded by Grow Wild and not just the BioBlitz, but also working with schools, getting them out of the classroom and down onto Jubilee Farm. And with me this month is Stephanie Bain, who is the Grow Wild manager for Northern Ireland. So Stephanie, who are Grow Wild and why work with local communities on nature conservation? Grow Wild is a project that is the outreach programme of the Royal Botanic Gardens queue. And the Royal Botanic Gardens has a, a, a mission to make everybody understand plants and fungi better. So Grow Wild works with communities who are not necessarily any have any involvement with nature or with growing or with any plant and encourage them to start bringing that connection to nature together yeah. particularly with native species and with local provenance species to understand that bringing in tropical species and decorative species is not always the best thing for a native wildlife. So the communities I work with can be very urban and some can be very rural and they don't tend to apply to us for wild projects. They tend to apply to us because they see it as a nice pot of money which is easy to get and then I make them think about native species of plants and that brings us into animals and the wider nature around us. Mm. It's all about taking notice and having some fun. Stephanie, particularly in, in places like the UK and Ireland, farm landscapes are really important for wild nature. So zooming out from the micro level with local communities to think about the landscape level, how do we maintain and in some cases restore biodiversity to those landscapes, especially where farming is concerned? The one thing I would say is that our landscapes are all managed. There's nothing truly wild about Northern Ireland and in fact the island of Ireland. Mm. So what we have to do is look at how our management practices can help biodiversity and the wild species of our, our, our land. Mm. So things that we consider wild, wildflowers, maybe the Irish hare, maybe the wolf, if it ever gets reintroduced, that'd be <laughs> quite great. Um, the, the whole point is that we manage the land around the possibility that they do come back and they do have something to a habitat and a range to live in so it's not so much about stopping farming if we stop farming completely mm. we would lose our landscape but it's about sympathetic farming and actually looking at farming management practices in a way that can encourage species to thrive so i suppose whether it's at the micro level or the macro whether it's at the local or the landscape it's all about reconnecting people with where they live it's all about reconnecting people with farm landscapes and the, and the role of, of good farming management in the conservation of wild nature and i suppose from our perspective at jubilee with our free range families project it's get a, getting people out of the classroom and out of their house and down onto the farm and engaging with the world around them
When we do look at sympathetic land management, it actually makes the land more sustainable and the people within it more sustainable by bringing not only those connections that you're talking about, but actually bringing a more sustainable farmed landscape that will last us many more years into the future. At the moment, we're just taking. We need to just give us back as much as possible. Moving from that industrial and extractive model of agriculture to one that's restorative and, and agroecological. So perhaps what we need is to match free-range families with free-range farming so that we have wild nature flourishing in all our landscapes. So that brings us to the end of this episode of Farmerama and three years of sharing the voices of small-scale farmers. What a journey it's been. Mm-hmm. And long may it continue. Absolutely. If you want to help us, share the show with your farmer friends. It's also really helpful if you can find the time to rate us and write a review on iTunes. That makes it a lot easier for new listeners to find us. One quick thing, grower Joel Rodka is recording an audio diary for us as he works to set up his first market garden. We've just added updates for May and June on our SoundCloud page. Um, So check those out and I'm sure Joel would love suggestions and encouragement in the comments. This month's show was produced by the three of us. I'm Abby, and I'm here with Katie and Joe. Additional reporting this week came from Johnny Hansen at Jubilee Farm. Social media is managed by Annie Landless, and our theme music by Owen Barrett. Toodaloo! Cheers. Bye.